This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at killerqueenspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Welcome back to Killer Queens. This is uh, an interesting case today, would you say? Oh, I would say. But before we get into that, we must remind you or tell you for the first time that we have a Patreon. And on that Patreon, we cover two extra episodes a week. So we'll have this episode this week. We'll have our murder mixtape, which is going to be Zara Baker, which is an absolutely heartbreaking case. And then we'll also have our Doc Jam, which will be the last episode of the Cecil Hotel thing on Netflix. I cannot remember the whole name of it. I have no idea. It's something like American Disappearance or something. I don't know. It's it's kind of a weird name. And then it's like the yeah, Cecil Hotel. Yeah, it's like Hotel. a lot of things in Cecil Hotel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you are interested in more episodes, you like our jam, um, as the guys in True Crime Garage would say, you like the cut of our jib, you can check oh. it out. <laughs> you know what I like to say? I thought about it just now. I was like, I feel like for Patreon, we're like, you want two shows? We got your shows. We got your shows. You want to- <laughs> I love that. That's our new Patreon. We're making a commercial with just that. We could be Spartan okay, cheerleaders. Thanks. And we can do that. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. okay cool. So yeah, if you want to check that out, you know, please do so. And all of those episodes are ad-free. So you can get this very episode ad-free. Check it out. Yes, there are reasons to go and you won't regret it. Or hopefully you won't regret it. Now you're putting doubt in their minds. Reasonable doubt. Well, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not doubt. I just don't want to assume. It's like when I tell somebody to have a good day, I'm like, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. (laughs) And they're like, you know what? I just, I'm sorry. I even said, have a good day. Like, forget it. Just forget it. Yeah. If you want to have a bad day, if you don't want good things in your life, then don't do the Patreon. That's, that's, I'm just saying you're in control of you. That's true. That's very nice of you. Uh, What are we going to talk about today, Tori? Well, we're going to talk about the Wichita massacre. And it's also referred to as the Carr brothers. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll reserve our opinions for later in the episode. Yes. Reginald and Jonathan Carr were brothers with an evil streak. That is an understatement. Mm-hmm. So this case is going to be taking place on the night of December 14th, 2000. They tortured and brutally murdered four people and injured another in the final act of their week-long crime spree that included another murder, kidnapping, and robbery. Ugh. So messed up. But we want to thank the people who requested it. 
Thank you to Bob Nelson. We love you. Oh, Bob. <laughs> Jamie Levenger. Hey, Jamie. Allison. And Cass Luth One. Yep. And we're not sure if we're saying that right, but hey, girl, thanks to all of you. Yeah, we love all and of, of you. And of course, yes. And thank you to Sloan for the research and script for today. We do also have a couple trigger warnings. We are going to be discussing rape as well as mentions of child abuse, suicide, cruelty to animals, and alcoholism. So if any of those are a little too much, then we totally get it. And we will now this is a two-part episode. So next week there's going to be part two of this. So we'll have those same trigger warnings for next week. Yes. And if you need to take two weeks off, that's totally fine. We will catch you on the next one. Yep. You can join the Patreon and binge a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, there you go. There's always there a way. Go. Life uh finds a way. Uh finds a way. Yep. Okay. On Friday, December 15th, 2000, a couple was trying to sleep in their home when suddenly there was a frantic banging on the front door at around 1.45 a.m. What was on the other side was a young woman who was bloody and naked and screaming that two men had shot her and her friends. The couple brought the young woman into their home and began to call 911. While the man of the house was calling 911, the young woman took the phone from him, wanting desperately to tell her story. She was sure that she was going to die, and she knew that if she didn't tell her story, her friends would be dead and the killers may never get caught. The woman told the 911 dispatcher as much as she could, and once at the hospital, she told the police everything. This woman is known only as HG. You could probably find her name if you Google enough, but through everything, she's maintained anonymity, and so we're going to follow through with that as well. So HG had told everyone that she and her friends had just been through a torturous night where they were robbed, beaten, raped, and eventually shot by two men. These men would turn out to be Reginald and Jonathan Carr, brothers who'd spent the week committing other robberies, kidnappings, and shootings, all culminating in the attack on HG and her friends. So we are going to get into a little background on the cars. Reginald Carr was born on November 14th, 1977, and less than three years later, on March 30th, 1980, his brother, Jonathan, was born. The boys were born in Dodge City and into a volatile family where their mother and dad both had hair-trigger tempers and fought frequently. According to the Killer Siblings episode on the brothers, Dodge City at this time was known for its crime and violence. The show said that the crime rate in Dodge City at the time was 28% higher than other parts of the country. This violence was also present in the Carr household. Reginald and Jonathan grew up with alcoholic parents who were verbally and physically abusive. It was also mentioned that their parents weren't very empathetic. And in fact, their mother would later testify to this. Their mother frequently used electrical cords to hit the children. That is absolutely horrific. I don't even know. I mean, it just reminds me of the movie The Cell. Remember the dad? Like he would uh-huh. beat him with all kinds of stuff. And it's just... It's just cruel. It is just cruel. Yeah, it is. And I think that that's something that you do take into account, not that it excuses anything. There's nothing in the world that excuses what these two people did. But I think that it's something to take into account as far as how do these tendencies or personalities or whatever develop, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, it has to start somewhere. Yeah. And I know that there 
like I think for the most part, whipping children has kind of gone by the wayside. I mean, some people still believe in it, but a lot of people have like kind of phased it out. I know mm-hmm. when we were growing up, whipping was very commonplace. I mean, there was still, um, oh my gosh, what do you call it in school? Uh, uh, oh, paddles. You got paddled. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine that today? No, no. That would be a lawsuit. 100%. I mean, I remember I never got paddled, but I remember the paddle. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah. And it had, didn't it have like, everybody signed it basically. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was like this just giant wooden thing that everybody signed. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, whipping, whether you're on board or not, I think we can all agree that a hand or maybe a yardstick, something like that is a lot different than an electrical cord. Yeah, definitely. Or like the end of a belt. Yeah. Like the buckle. buckle I've heard of, mm-hmm. yeah, people, oh my gosh. Yeah, Come exactly. On. Their parents' marriage collapsed and they divorced. After the divorce, Reginald and Jonathan's dad vanished from their t- lives and vanished from their lives immediately. Their mother, Janice Harding, would eventually remarry. This marriage was just as tumultuous as the first, and once this husband even put a gun to Janice's head. Mm-hmm. This husband and later boyfriends of Janice abused the boys and their sister verbally, physically, and sexually. It was also said that their father abused their sister sexually as well. With the instability in their mother's house, Reginald and Jonathan often stayed with their maternal grandmother, but like her daughter, this grandmother was easily angered. The brothers dealt with the turmoil in their lives in very different ways. Jonathan attempted suicide at age seven and again at age 16 by drinking antifreeze. Oh, that's so sad. That's so, so sad. Meanwhile, Reginald went with the I've got nothing to lose approach. Reginald had been exposed to drugs and sex by the age of six and had a terrible school record academically, as well as for constantly getting in fights. He was in and out of prison from a young age for burglary, drugs, possession and distribution, and fighting, leaving Jonathan to sit and wait for his beloved big brother to get out of prison so they could get into trouble together. Jonathan adored Reginald and looked up to him, and Reginald loved that Jonathan loved him so much. Reginald was reportedly protective of Jonathan and used Jonathan's adoration in order to have the partner in crime. You can see exactly that bond and how it culminates into this case. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing too. It's like, I think it's one of those things where even though you don't agree with it and you would never do it yourself, you can understand how it came to be. Yeah. I wish that we had articulated it that way in the Eileen Warnos cases. If you're new to the show and you haven't listened to that, or even if you did listen to it, we had a couple people kind of not like the approach we took. And I think that maybe we just didn't articulate it exactly this way because we certainly don't think that anything that she did was okay and there's an excuse. It's just that when you look at her background, you can see how those things became embedded in her personality and wrong as they were, why she believed the things she did. And it's, you know, the same here. You just see how all of this is coming together. Like you just see those pieces in the puzzle being put into place that formed what eventually happened. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Also, though, I did read that so Reginald, you know, was into he got into drugs and stuff at a very early age. And I also read that he was sexually active with one of his cousins at age six. Oh no. Like by that age. And I just, I mean, my son is five. He's a baby. I just can't even understand that. Like Mm -mm. I can't understand it. But again, if you look at something like that in a child, they're not children really anymore. You lose that. You know, he should be playing with superhero stuff or, you know, like mm -hmm. it's jarring. Just such a different uh, existence. Yes, exactly. And it makes you grow up so fast and you lose all that innocence. It's just so sad. Yeah. In 1995, Reginald was sentenced to 13 months in prison for theft. He was also ordered to serve six months for aggravated assault and subverting the legal process. In 1996, he was sentenced to another 28 months on drug charges. So it would have had to have been, if he served the entire sentence, at that point, 19 months in prison. 13 plus 6, 19, right? Mm -hmm. That's a year and seven months. We would ha have had to have been the very beginning of 95. And then he got charged again the very end of 96. Yeah, I wonder if it was um, not that like he got out and... Well, and I don't know... How much did he serve of that? Because says he was sentenced to 13 months. Yeah. He may not have served the whole thing or he may have had pending a pending case that went through during that time. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I just feel like what we've seen time and time again is people getting, and I'm not saying that he got a slap on the wrist, but other people have gotten slap, slaps on the wrist. And then they go on to ramp up, ramp up. Like it's, I don't know what the right answer is, but I see you go back and you look at it you know, go through it with a fine tooth comb and you're like, that could have been changed. That could have been changed. Like, yes, you dropped yeah. the ball there, you know? Yeah, so many cases where it's like, you know, it just slips through the cracks. It slips through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And and there's so many people that should not be behind bars for drug charges. And, you know, it's so hard to, you know, somebody like this. Yes. You wish that maybe they hadn't been able to, or or at the very least, he's that young. Put him into programs that help him. But unfortunately, he's a marginalized individual mm -hmm. that people don't care about. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you absolutely should care about him, but they didn't, I'm sure. So they were like, oh, get him out of here. You know, like, let's keep it moving. Yeah. And when they're that young, I mean, 
I guess there are some people who are a lost cause, quote unquote, but what if they're not? Like, that's a chance worth taking. Mm -hmm. What if there is something you can do, especially that early? You get this guy in his 40s, maybe not. You get him in his teens. Yeah. We've got something to work with. Exactly. It's frustrating. Reginald, like his mother, racked up a couple marriages as well as multiple children. By 2000, Reginald and Jonathan decided to step up their criminal game. Up to this point, they were doing a lot of small-time things, but they were ready to get into bigger things like armed robbery. In March of 2000, Reginald had been on parole, and in November, he had been arrested for drunk driving. And days later, he was back in court for forgery and parole violation. But then, days before they left for Wichita on December 5th, 2000, Reginald was released from parole. Perfect timing. Mm -hmm. So by this time, Reginald was 22 and Jonathan was 20. And they had decided that their new plan was to leave Dodge City and take their shenanigans on the road to Wichita. Uh, Sloan gave us a good dad joke. Get the heck out of Dodge, if you will. Well, I was wondering because I've heard that so many times and I'm like, are they talking? Is that what they're talking about? Out of actual Dodge City? Out of actual Dodge. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know either. Probably. Because Dodge City is an old city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you think of like like Western stuff, like if your school did a Western something, it would be Dodge City. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe uh, we're idiots and we just didn't know that's where that came from. I'm sure someone will let us know. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Someone will let us know. (laughs) But the... Brothers had in their heads for some reason that Wichita was full of wealthy people and they were just going to rob as many people as they could. Their plan was to focus on people with expensive cars they could either rob right there or follow home. By December of 2000, the brothers had made their way to Wichita and on December 7th, they committed their first known attack in this spree. And this is just two days after Reginald is released on parole. Perfect. On that December 7th, Andrew Schreiber was a 23-year-old assistant baseball coach, and he'd stopped at a local convenience store called... Don't say it. It's called Come and Go, like the comings and goings. But tell them how it's spelled. But it's spelled K-U-M. It's better than C-U-M. It is. Why in the world would you do that? Ew. Yeah, it's upsetting at best. It's worse to read it. I feel like, (laughs) I don't know, then to picture it, like as soon as I read it, because somehow in everything that I've like looked at, read, whatever, I did not ever see the name of the store. (laughs) Or maybe I blocked it out of my memory. I was going to say, now you wish you really had never, still had never seen it. Yeah, exactly. So Andrew was six feet tall. He had blonde hair and blue eyes. He loved the outdoors. He said he had loved baseball since he could walk. He said, I usually play catchers so I can be involved in every play, every pitch. So this night after baseball, Andrew needed some skull, as one does. And after picking up his can, he headed back to his car. That's such a pitcher baseball thing to have, right? Oh, yeah. Isn't that their thing? They like go to pitch and then they like... Big league chew. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So as Andrew, who went by Andy, reached his car, he suddenly had two men approach him and put a gun to his head. The men forced him into his car and then forced him to drive around to ATMs to withdraw as much money from his accounts as they could until the card stopped working. So they get $800 off of him. He said later, I was just hoping that if I did what they said, they'd let me live. After robbing Andy of his money, they forced him to go to a parking lot. He was pistol whipped and shoved out of the car. The two men got out, shot out the tires of Andy's truck, and then they drove off in their own car. 
And at this point, they've got one of them is in the truck with Andy. One of them is following behind in their car. So now they've shot the tires out of his car. They've beaten him and they're off. So they actually do leave him with his life. I would hope that them being from Dodge City, like as they were leaving, they're just like shooting up in the air, like how they do in Westerns and stuff. Like on their horses, like around in circles. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking like the three amigos, but (laughs) that's like, that's my extent. The three amigos and Tombstone is my extent of Westerns. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, the three amigos would be a good, it's a good image. Anyway. Yes, okay. (laughs) The brothers were on the prowl again three nights later on December 11th when they followed the car of 55-year-old Anne Walenta, a wife and mother of two children. Anne was a cellist and the symphony librarian who keeps track of the sheet music and orders more. Wow. For the Wichita Symphony Orchestra. What a very niched down job. Yes, exactly. I'm in like, charge of all of the sheet music. That's my entire job. Yeah. I'm not saying it's it's a it's a great job. She seems like she's very good for the job, but yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that, that was a thing. I know. That's like at a dinner party, you're like, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I'm a administrative assistant. Nothing wrong with that. I do it, but you know, it's just like, oh, okay, that's cool. And you're like, well, I'm a cellist and I'm in charge of all the sheet music at the symphony orchestra. That's but you would like, say I'm Ooh. I'm a cellist and a symphony librarian. That sounds more professional. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds cool. <laughs> she was on her way home from symphony practice around 9.30 p.m. when she noticed a car that seemed to be following her. They followed her into a nice neighborhood. And when Anne pulled into her driveway, the car drove past her and down to the cul-de-sac. Then it came back up to her driveway. So Anne is still sitting in her car when a black man comes up to her window claiming that he needs help. She rolls down her window just a little so she could hear him speak, but when she did, he put a gun in the opening. Anne threw her car into reverse in an attempt to escape. The man fired off seven shots, three of which hit Anne. Her car hit the curb on the other side of the street and Anne fell forward onto her car horn. While the men escaped, Anne's neighbors were calling the police. Not only had they heard gunshots, but someone's car horn was blaring. Anne Walenta was taken to the hospital and gave her story to the police officers. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The night of December 14th, HG and her friends were having a regular Thursday night. HG had gotten there around 8.30 p.m. with her dog, Nikki, and was grading papers while waiting for her boyfriend, Jason Beffert, to get home from coaching basketball. Jason and his college friends, 27-year-old Brad Haka and 29-year-old Aaron Sander, lived in this triplex together. All three men were doing great things in their lives. Jason was a bespectacled science teacher at Augusta High School, and he coached the boys' junior varsity basketball team. It was also said that he had a flamboyant streak and loved to wear these bright blue shoes he had. I mean, I guess for men in the early 2000s... In Wichita. (laughs) In Wichita, maybe that's flamboyant, but... Like, look at that flamboyant man. He has blue shoes. (laughs) I I don't know if I just am desensitized to quote-unquote flamboyant outfit choices, but that's not... (laughs) Right, yeah. It's like you have any color to your shoes at all. That is flamboyant. Apparently, yeah. (laughs) Brad Haka was the director of finance at the Koch Institute, a petroleum and chemical conglomerate. Remember that one time that I woke up with the word conglomerate in my head? Yes. You often think about the word conglomerate and I'm not really sure why. And here it is. I know. What are the odds? (laughs) What are the odds? Brad was considered a valued employee with a bright future. He had been promoted three times in three years. He was described as quote-unquote chubby with a winning smile and a great sense of humor. That's kind of like rude. (laughs) Yeah, let's see. What does it matter? Like, Do people... If you are going to write an article about somebody and you've got to describe them, Mm -hmm. like, why do people feel the need to call... Like attention to if somebody's chubby or round. I've seen like cherub like, you know, stuff like that. Not for not for him, but just in general, like seeing stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. do people also are they like, she's a skinny woman who I don't know. Like I just don't feel like you see words like that when well, people are skinny is not the word they use. I feel like fit or thin. Yeah, thin, stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's just what does it matter? Well, exactly. Now, if you're giving a description like, be on the lookout for this person. Yeah. Have you seen this person? Yeah, you need as much information as you can get. But it's just like, if if somebody has passed and you're supposed to describe them, like, we're talking about what kind of person they were. I don't need to know his weight. No, I don't think that that's Doesn't matter. important. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just rude. Yeah. Aaron Sander was the other... Oh, and I feel like whenever I heard, read it, I was like, ooh chubby. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Aaron Sander was the other roommate and had recently made a big life change. He had previously worked as a financial analyst at Koch Institute as well, but quit so he could go into the priesthood. 
He had always been a devout Roman Catholic and had felt the call to become a priest. To do this, he had to break up with his girlfriend, Heather Muller. Heather was still a dear friend to him and she too was a devout Roman Catholic. Heather and Aaron didn't have any ill feelings towards each other. And in fact, Heather had also felt like she might be being called to become a nun. Wow. I know. 25-year-old Heather Muller was a pretty young woman with light brown hair and was currently a graduate student at Wichita State University. She was a preschool teacher at this time and worked at the St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic School. But how much did she weigh? You know, and that's just one thing that I don't know if we're ever going to know that. And it's important. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. I don't know if I can think about the case as a whole without knowing that piece of information, but... She had joined the men and HG for the evening. HG had her own key and let herself in. Jason arrived at the home around 9.15 and not long after arriving home, he and HG went to bed. At this time, around 10 p.m., Jason checked all the lights and locks and headed to bed himself. Also, I just have to interject this. Her little doggie that she brought with her was a little schnauzy. Oh, little schnauzy Nikki. Schnauzy. Mm-hmm. Aaron was asleep on the couch in the living room and Heather was asleep in his bedroom. Brad had also already headed to bed in his basement bedroom. The friends were settled in for the night when around 11 p.m. the porch light came on and HG and Jason heard a knock at the door. Then they heard voices and shouting. That's about the time Jason's bedroom door burst open. HG would later recall that a tall black male was standing in the doorway. Nikki had her teeth bared and was growling at the unknown intruders. The men demanded that that they get the dog or they'd shoot her. The friends in the house didn't know these men were the Carr brothers and HG would refer to them as the tall one, Reginald, and the shorter one, Jonathan. HG would later tell police that the tall one, Reginald, had put on a black coat and black leather gloves and the shorter one, Jonathan, had poofy hair that was styled in clumps and wearing a leather jacket and an orange and black FUBU sweatshirt, jeans, and tan hiking boots. I'm gonna guess that those tan hiking boots were Tim's. Don't you think? Oh yeah. Jonathan ripped the colors covers off of Jason and HG and Reginald forced Aaron into the bedroom with a gun aimed at them. Aaron was thrown onto the bed and the cars demanded to know if anyone else was in the house. Out of sheer terror, the friends told the cars about Heather and Brad in the other rooms. One of the brothers gathered them as well. They are emptying the dumpsters. (laughs) (laughs) I think too that even if they hadn't told them about them, it probably would have gone worse for them because they would have gone through the house and if they found out they were lying. Oh, well, not that it could have really gone worse. Well, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Andy Schreiber complied and I don't know specifically if that's what saved his life, but for whatever reason, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know if they just hadn't ramped up yet or what, but I just hope that like thinking back on this, that she doesn't feel guilt you know, right. they would have found them anyway without them telling, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, like, and I think, I mean, gosh, look at the way that this turned out. So they complied and this is what happened. Mm-hmm. If they had not complied, yeah, exactly. Like what could they have done that's worse than this? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Now that all five of them were in the same room, the cars demanded that they all strip naked. The brothers asked their terrified hostages if they had any money. The hostages told them to take the money and take anything that they wanted. The men asked where the safe was, but they were told there wasn't a safe. One of the men said, in a house this nice, there has to be a safe. Do you just suspect that everywhere, every house has a safe? Yeah, and these are like- These are college kids. Three single people, yeah, that are roommates. It's not like this is a couple that's like 
to doctors and they've been established in their careers for 30 years and they're like... Well, it's not wealth management, you know? Like Wilson's on Dennis the Menace where he has that safe with like doubloons (laughs) in it. Right, yeah. This is like, yeah, no. So like we're roommates. We just pretty much have whatever we can fit in here. Like, And what would they have put in their safe anyway? Like it doesn't seem like... Not that it's a bad thing, but they don't seem like the kind of people that care much about like material things. Well, no, and they're not like they're just getting their lives, you know, their lives started. Yeah. yeah, they're yeah, yeah. What was that? Was it the was it the Clutter family? Oh, one where they thought for sure there was going to be all that money in the house, yes. and they killed everybody, and then there was no money in the house. Like just assuming again, mm-hmm. like oh, it's so sad. It is sad. Like all of it is senseless. No matter which way you slice it, it's all senseless. But just thinking that like. Their whole thinking is, first of all, everybody in this town is rich. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you're going to find that except for like Coronado, California or something right, like that. Beverly you know, there's Hills. like, there's going to be yeah, little areas, but there's going to be, I mean, God, even Malibu has a trailer park. Right. You're going to like run the gamut everywhere. There's just going to be pockets, you mm-hmm. know, like this pocket is a, a more affluent area. This pocket is not, whatever. But just walking into somebody's house and being like, where's the safe? Yeah, exactly. Like, what safe? We don't have a safe. And then basically getting punished for their assumption being wrong. Well, we just saw that. What case did we cover where he was mad because he asked where where something was and they didn't have it and he got pissed because he couldn't steal from them? Oh, it was (sighs) Night Stalker. And it was the older woman. Oh, uh uh-huh. Remember he went in to her apartment, the son was out and he went into her apartment and he was like, okay, where's all the money for me to take? Or what's, you know, he got mad because he looked around and couldn't find anything of value. So he got mad and killed her. Uh huh. Yeah. Because she was, yeah, he was basically taking care of her. Like he had all of the stuff in the other apartment, which was in his, like they lived in the same building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, okay, you're an idiot. And now somebody's going to pay with their lives for it. Just, yeah. It's ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. However, money wasn't the Carr brothers' only motive tonight. It's not known if the rest of the events were part of some kind of plan or something they just decided on the fly. But once the hostages were naked, the brothers forced them into the bedroom closet and told them not to talk. The brothers began to pull the hostages out in pairs to perform sex acts on each other. First was Heather and HG, who the Carrs directed to perform digital and oral sex acts on each other. That's horrific. Uh Just why do you have to... You're already torturing them. Yeah. Enough, you know? Like, why? Any part of that was enough torture. Exactly. It, I know. There's just no reason for it. Then Heather was returned to the closet and Brad was brought out. The brothers ordered him to have sex with HG, but Brad couldn't get an erection. He tried to make it happen, but he couldn't. The man got angry that Brad couldn't get an erection and took him back to the closet. Yeah, and they actually like at one point were like, okay, you've got three minutes. Make it happen. Yeah. And he's like, ah, I know I, this is not going to work. Like, in what world is that going to happen? Exactly. <laughs> like, it's terrible. Jason was brought out after the cars got annoyed with Brad's inability to perform, but Jason couldn't get an erection either. So he tried to force himself inside HG so the men wouldn't hurt them. But when the brothers found out that they were dating, they made him stop. They didn't want the legitimate couple to be together. I don't... It's just... Yeah. It is it is sadistic and evil 
Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. Like they're like, okay, we want, we only want the worst things to happen tonight. Yeah, exactly. Like that's not going to be that's not bad enough. Traumatic yeah, enough. Exactly. Yeah. Jason was taken back to the closet, and Aaron was brought out and also forced to have intercourse with HG. However, Aaron stood strong with his religious convictions and told the men that he couldn't do it. They responded by clocking him in the back of the head with the butt of a pistol. HG was taken back into the closet and Heather was taken out. The hostages in the closet could hear what was going on just 12 feet away. They could hear that Aaron was once again being forced to have intercourse, but this time with Heather. Not only does he not want to do this with his friend slash former girlfriend, he doesn't want to have sex at all because of his religious convictions. And it's especially stressful and scary. It's an especially stressful and scary situation. Aaron wasn't able to get an erection. The cars didn't care about Aaron's religion. One of them hit him over the head with a golf club and told him that he had until 11.54 to get hard. It was 11.52. Yeah, like that's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. If like, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And also like they're dudes. They know that. Well, and again, it's just they, it doesn't matter to them. Mm-hmm. They don't see them you as You know, they're just trying to do, yeah, they're just trying to do whatever they can to entertain themselves. Inflict violence and, yeah. and yeah, and all that. I don't, I just don't understand. I mean, I guess that this is like a whole different kind of person, luckily again, than I know anything about. But I don't understand the whole men watching porn together situation. So in person, I can't understand with your brother Uh watching sexual acts being carried out. Yeah, that you're forcing. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, it's so weird. Like, other people don't need to know like whatever it is that you're into. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's just weird. That's just not like conversations you have like like in this capacity. Like right. I'm not saying that you can never talk about sex with your friends or anything like that, of course, but just like in this capacity. And it also is very weird to me when people watch porn together. Like that grosses right. me out. I remember in high school, boys would talk about it. Like, oh yeah, we all hung out Friday night. We watched a bunch of porn together. I'm like, ew. Do you guys just like all pop boners together? Like what? What yeah, is that? Is so weird. It's super it's so weird. weird. Yeah. According to one source, no punishment was enforced when he didn't, but another source said he was beaten with the golf club and then he was ushered back into the closet. Jason was then forced to have intercourse with Heather. Brad was next with Heather. HG remembers being able to hear Heather moan in pain. After their torturous sex show, the cars asked which of the five friends had ATM cards. One brother was going to take them to the ATMs. However, because they were stressed, Heather, HG, and Brad couldn't find their keys. The cars threatened to pop someone. The keys were found at Jason's truck. Then they were taken one by one out to the pickup truck and Reginald would force them to drive to the ATM. So first up was Brad. While Reginald was out with Brad, Jonathan brought HG back out and raped her before throwing her back into the closet. The amount of just, oh my gosh. Brad and Reginald returned and Jason was next to go with Reginald. Back in the closet, Brad told his friends nothing about the ATM trip. Even when Aaron asked him if they should try to resist, Brad didn't respond. This time while Reginald was away, Jonathan raped Heather. When Reginald returned, HG volunteered to be the next to go to the ATMs. Reginald only let her put on a sweater because he said he, quote, liked seeing her without underwear. It's disgusting. She was instructed to drive Jason's truck to the banks and not look at Reginald, who was crouched in the back seat. The man talked to HG on their trip. He asked her what his partner had done with her while he was gone. 
and she told him that he had raped her. Reginald laughed and asked, did you like it? HG didn't want to make him angry, so she told him that she had. He asked her if she'd ever been with a black man before, and she admitted that she hadn't. Reginald asked her if the man that had raped her was better than her boyfriend. And again, she didn't want to anger him, so she said yes. What is the point of asking this question? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what does he think? Like, what is the end game here? Yeah, you know that she's terrified. Of -hmm. course, she didn't like that. Like, well, I think it's just to inflict more trauma. Yeah. Oh, gosh. He asked her if she'd liked being with a girl, and she told him no, because this seemed like a slightly less inflammatory question. And Reginald said, baby, that's all right. You ain't got to lie to me. HG took the opportunity to find out what the men were going to do. She asked Reginald if they were going to shoot them, and he told her no. She asked, do you promise you're not going to kill us? And he said that they weren't. While they were at the ATM, Reginald put his gloved hand on her privates and rubbed. HG was surprised and slammed into the window. After HG took out the money on the way back to the house, Reginald said that he, quote, wished we could have met under different circumstances. He said that she was cute and we probably would have hit it off. And she said, yeah, me too. When he asked her what she meant, she said, well, I'm not really having a good time. What does he think she's going to say? This is great, but maybe we could just try something different next time. Yeah. Like, I've raped you. I've beaten people around you. I've forced you to do these sexual acts on your friends. Yeah. I've humiliated you. I've terrified you. Stolen all your money. Yeah. Like, seriously. I wish we could have met under different circumstances. Okay. HG would be the last of the friends to be taken to the ATMs. And by then, the cars had taken over $1,800 in cash from them. And again, $1,800 is not that much money. I mean, Mm-mm. maybe maybe in the in the sense that they're starting with nothing because they're whatever they steal, I'm assuming they're immediately spending on something. But that's not that much. And you're talking about lives. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just, and again, not that if they'd gotten $20,000, it would have been worth it in any way. It's just, it's just so senseless. I don't know. It's just, it's so sad. Back at the house, the torture continued. The man, the men asked their captives if anyone wanted a drink, but everybody, of course, said no. <laughs> the men also found Nikki's muzzle and threw it in the closet. HG put it on Nikki, hoping to keep her quiet and safe. So Reginald and Jonathan again raped the two women and again, raped HG. I mean, I I can't imagine the pain they're going through. I just... Mm -mm. It would later be wondered why the three male hostages had never tried to rise up and overtake their captors. There were times when Reginald was out and at least two of the men were there with Jonathan and there were times that the women were being raped when all three men could have gotten the jump on Reginald and Jonathan. However, it was noted that there was not a single solitary weapon in that house. None of the hostages were familiar with guns. HG would later testify that there was a time when she was on her hands and knees while one of the brothers was unzipping his pants and preparing to assault her again, that he laid the pistol on the floor only two feet away from her hand. She said she thought about grabbing it, but then she realized she had no idea how to use a gun. They all assumed these men were there for money and valuables and thought that if they just did what the men said, they'd be fine. And of course, you know, of course, like, I don't like this kind of speculation or these questions. Like that to me is not fair. It kind of almost falls in with like victim shaming. Mm-hmm. Like 
why don't you do something? Like, how can you know how you would feel in that moment being terrified? And these two men, it's not like they're just using their fists. Even if they are, you can kill someone with just your fist, but it's Absolutely. like they have guns. Yeah, exactly. That's how, that's how, even if there was just one of them, he could have come in and gotten control over all of those people with a gun. And they did everything that they knew to do to overtake and overpower everybody. They put everybody in the same area. Uh-huh. They stripped them down to nothing where they couldn't hide anything, mm-hmm. you know, like. Yeah, exactly. And they've got weapons. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. you're not, you're no match, unfortunately. I just don't. It just really pisses me off when people are like, well, why didn't they do something? Yeah. There were men there. Why didn't they do something? Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, the other people had guns. Like, what are you supposed to do? As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Brothers destroyed the house looking for money and valuables when they found a popcorn tin. When they opened it, there was an engagement ring inside. So this is how HG finds out that Jason had bought an engagement ring and was going to propose to her. Because when they pull this ring out, he has to tell her like, well, that's for you. I was going to propose. It's terrible. How horrific. Just... So at this point, Jason and HG had been dating for several years and his friend and family had kind of been teasing him about when he was going to propose. And he decided that he was going to do it. So he'd bought her a ring about a week before and had planned to ask her the following Friday on December 22nd. And he'd even bought a book on how to propose. Oh my gosh. How sweet is that? By this time, it was about midnight and the cars were ready to move to the next phase of their nightmare. The five hostages were led at gunpoint out to the Honda Accord that belonged to Aaron. It was less than 18 degrees Fahrenheit, and there was at least a couple inches of snow on the ground, but the cars didn't let them get dressed. The women were allowed to wear a sweater or sweatshirt, but the men were completely naked. Everybody was barefoot, and the women are naked from the waist down. They just have a sweater or sweatshirt on. That's it. Mm -hmm. The cars tried to shove all five hostages into the trunk, but then they figured out that five grown adults are not going to fit into this sedan's trunk. So they regrouped and only the three men were shoved into the trunk. Like, have you ever seen a Honda Accord? How did they even fit? (laughs) Like, yeah, exactly. Like, no, they're not all going to fit, dude. Reginald had taken HG and demanded that she join him in Jason's truck again. Mm. Jonathan drove Aaron's Honda with Heather in the back seat. HG made a mental note of the time, 12.07 a.m., this had been going on for three hours. Oh my they were all shuttled to an empty soccer field and Reginald ordered HG to get in the Honda and sit next to Heather. The men were taken out of the, taken out of the trunk and lined up in front of the silver sedan. 
HG said she turned to Heather and said, they're going to shoot us. HG and Heather were then brought out to stand beside the men. Heather stood by Aaron and HG by Jason, and they were all ordered to turn away from the men and kneel in the snow. And HG remembered, as I was kneeling, a gun went off. Then I heard Aaron. I could distinguish Aaron's voice. He said, please, no, sir, please. And then the gun went off. She heard three shots before she felt a bullet hit the back of her head. She remembered everything went gray with white-like stars. She said she didn't lose consciousness or fall forward. So one of the men actually kicked her forward. Nice. Wow. And then she played dead. She lay in the freezing snow in nothing but a sweater. The brothers got in Jason's truck and they ran over the bodies as they left. God, just heartless. Yes, just there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Mm -mm. It's just human bodies with just evil inside. Mm -hmm. And HG felt the truck touch her too, like hit her too, but she completely stayed still and quiet. Because she knew if they thought that there was any chance that she had survived, they were going to come and finish her off. She said, I waited until I couldn't hear anymore. Then I turned my head and saw lights going. I looked at everyone. Everyone was face down. Jason was next to me. I rolled him over. There was blood squirting everywhere. So I took my sweater off and tied it around his head to try to stop it. He had blood coming out of his eyes. Oh, God. Can you imagine? Oh, my gosh. Thinking that since there was active bleeding, Jason was still alive at the moment, HG knew she needed to get help. She was either going to die out there with a head wound or by freezing to death if she didn't do something. She saw Christmas lights in the distance and decided she was going to live. She ran naked through the snow, across a field, climbed over a barbed wire fence, and then out to the main road. And every time she saw car lights, she dropped to the ground thinking it was her attackers. That's so scary. I mean, God, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But like, I feel like, you know, it's like if you see a car coming, you, I feel like, you know, that inclination would be like, okay, let me flag somebody down so I can get there faster. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't know if they're coming back. You know, they took off in a car and she doesn't want them to see her. Oh gosh, it's just awful. It is. I don't even know how she mustered up the courage to do it. Exactly. When she finally reached the house with the Christmas lights, she beat on the door to the house and rang the bell trying to get the people inside to help her. Help me, help me. We've all been shot. Three of my friends are dead. At this point, she thought Jason was still alive. The couple answered the door and brought HG in. They wrapped her in blankets and put a compress to her head. She was panicked thinking that she was going to die before she could tell her story and say everything that she needed to say. When the man called 911, HG took the phone to tell her own story. Help me, please. I've been shot in the head. Two men broke into our house and they held us and took everything. They executed my four friends and I've been shot in the head. And you can hear this in the Killer Sibling episode, uh, which we watched on Hulu. Mm -hmm. HG was taken to the hospital and gave the police as much information as she could before she went to surgery, including the descriptions of the men in Jason's truck. So the thing is, like when she gets to the house, and she's knocking on the door and they let her in. They're trying to call 911 immediately. And she's like, uh-uh, you're not calling anybody until I tell you everything I have to tell you. Because she was scared that the ambulance wouldn't get there in time, that she'd already be dead. Mm-hmm. And that she couldn't give them the information they needed to catch these people. So crazy. I mean... Can you imagine like knowing that? Right. And putting yourself aside and being like, look, I don't know if I'm going to live or not. 
but I can't put that at the forefront because I have to get out everything that I can get out right now. Because mm-hmm. who knows if she had, you know, if she'd gone into surgery and then if she'd been in a coma for a couple of days, you know, like you don't know what would happen. But for her to like have the forethought to think ahead of those things. And she was also asking people, because she's a teacher, what are going to happen? You know, who's going to take care of my kids if I die? Like, mm. she's just selfless. It's mm-hmm. just about everybody except for her. She told people to call her mom and call Jason's mom and tell them they love them. Like, mm-hmm. oh, man. It was so sweet. It's so, so sad, though. It turned out the reason that HG was still alive was the metal hair clip she'd been wearing had deflected the bullet. No one was sure if it had fully saved her life yet but they knew that it was the reason that she was still alive now and the cars hadn't counted on her living. A hair clip. That is insane. That's very, oh, I can't think of her name, Dale Okazaki. Uh-huh, Maria Hernandez. Maria Hernandez, the key. The key. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It's that very small thing that, you know, and it's for people who are, you know, spiritual, you know, that's a, somebody's not done with you being on this earth, you know, mm-hmm. like, that's like almost feels like divine intervention. Yeah. With HG's description of Jason's Dodge truck, the officers got the license plate and registration and they put out a bolo. After the 911 call, units were dispatched to the soccer field. It was around 2 a.m. When the first officer arrived on the scene, he thought the shooters might still be there. So he approached the silver Honda with his gun drawn. But then he saw bodies in front of the car and he said it was like a movie. There were two bodies face down in the snow with another lying on top of them with a sweater around his head. Then there was a gap with a blood spot in the snow before where there was one more body. It was described by the people that saw the scene as something like out of a movie. There were shoe impressions, tire tracks, bullet casings, fingerprints, and hairs, all needing to be processed and quickly. The officers were being encouraged to do this expeditiously because these men were out there. One of the detectives said it best when he said that killing the first person is hard, but after that, it's easier. And that's exactly what they were afraid of. Is like, okay, now that they've crossed that threshold, Mm -hmm. are they going to just be like... Killing spree. Because, yeah, because with Andrew or Andy, they did not kill him. They robbed him. But this is the first time that we know of that they've carjacked somebody or, or, you know, they've stolen things before, but not one-on-one with a person like this. Right. So they've, you know, ramped up there. Then they ramp up by breaking into the house and doing all these things with them. And now they've shot them. And and they did shoot Anne, but it was still in a little bit of a different situation. But still, they've done that. So, you know, they get a little bit bolder and bolder each time. Now that they've actually murdered people, are they just going to go around and murder everybody they come into contact with? Right. Like, that's a very real concern. Mm-hmm. The police went back to the triplex and found that the cars had returned there and taken as many valuables as they could. And now remember, we mentioned animal cruelty. Mm -hmm. Um, So here it comes. Also on their return, they killed HG's dog, Nikki. Uh. Like, why? And you know what? Like, this is terrible and awful. And anybody that dies and passes away and is murdered is just terrible. But in this, I'm like... You know, you hope, like, please just keep one little thing. Like, you could have, like, one yeah, little one... shred of humanity and just not exactly. kill the dog. Yeah. Is there any... Because what threat is the dog to you? It's a schnauzer. It's not going to attack you. And even if it did, you'd be like, well, that's cute. Well, but it had a muzzle on. Oh, yeah. She did have a muzzle on. And also, like, she can't identify you. Right. She's not going to call 911. 
She's not going to run out in the street and be like, somebody help me. Like, yeah, I'm just fucking assholes, man. Senseless. Why? Heather Muller's mom came to the house and stopped an officer. She told him that her daughter hadn't come home and that she was worried. And he remembered that all he could say is, I'm sorry. And her mom asked about Aaron. Is Aaron okay? And, you know, she's like, is Heather okay? Is Aaron okay? And he's like, no, they're not okay. Like, it's heartbreaking. Mm -mm. And he was not expecting to have to, you know, she just came out of nowhere. He wasn't expecting to have to give that news to anybody. Yeah, right at that moment. They were expecting to be able to, you know, make those phone calls or do the visits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and kind of prepare themselves Yeah, as best you can. I definitely am not jealous of that part of the job at all, having to tell people that. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. Media outlets picked up the story and showed up at the house quickly, of course. The police decided to use the media to their advantage and release certain clues to get a lead on where their suspects might be. And this is something that I feel like we talk about in so many cases where it's like, you could use the media to your advantage and say, you know, look for this or look for that. And there are some cases where we've just seen the police hold every detail hostage mm-hmm. when people could be looking for a vehicle or something. And it's just like, I mean, what they did in this case worked. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I just thought the information they chose to release was well done, I guess. Yeah, the right information. Yeah, because I think, I mean, time is of the essence in this kind of thing. So if you sit on that and wait, and then you finally decide, okay, well, what I've been doing is not working. I'm going to release this. Well, doesn't matter. They've abandoned the vehicle. They've already crossed into Mexico. They've already, you know, like... Right, yeah, exactly. They've killed someone else. Exactly, yeah. They released the information about Jason Beffert's truck in the engagement ring along with the description of the suspect's. And that's how they found out that the truck was in an apartment complex in Wichita. The most luxurious place in all of the land. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. No shade to Wichita. I'm making fun of the cars. (laughs) Yeah, where the streets are paved with gold. Exactly. Like, there are no (laughs) cats in Wichita. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Get over yourself, idiots. I know. Yeah. So... We are honing in on the car's location and we're going to have to tell you the rest of it next time. We've just flat run out of time here. Yep. We're going to R-U-N-N-O-F-T and we'll be back with part two. Yeah, we sure are. Now, if you're a patron, you can just shimmy on over there and get part two right now. It's ready for Mm -hmm. you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you are not a patron, no worries. We'll catch you next week. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, we have got some more shout outs. Yay! Yay! Hey, girl, thanks to new patrons Carly Zarnick, Lindsay Peel, Candace Brooks, Erica Ramirez, Andrea Mills, Sophia Blessing, Stephen Kopko, Good Grain, Katie Nichols, Julia Horn, Kylie Langwell, Morgan, Morgan Martin. Crystal is amazing. Well, that was smart. We just called you amazing. (laughs) Exactly. And you are. Jamie Osborne. Rhonda Ford. Genevieve Aldi. And Melanie's Dream. And we have our next review of the week that we are highlighting. Uh, This was shared on our Patreon by Athena David. 
And she said, describing killer queens, my friend asked me why I love this podcast so much, and I described it for her. I said, think Cher Horowitz meets Dolly Parton, create a love child. Then that person meets Bill Curtis. And two random girls are the product of that. It's the girls running the podcast. Smart, weird, pretty, blonde, hilarious, Southern, and just really okay with being themselves even when it's weird, which is all the time. It made me realize Tori and Torella became, I assume, their role models without even meaning to. Oh my God. I literally could cry and also like putting Cher Horowitz, Dolly Parton, and Bill Curtis together. It's the trifecta. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Yeah. So thank you, Athena. We are so grateful. Yes. Thank you so much for your kind words. Yes. That means the absolute freaking world does. Yes. And thank you so much to our new patrons. We love you guys so much. And thank you for listening. Yes. And if you want to be featured on this little segment here, then leave us a review where we can see it, like iTunes, Facebook, whatever. And um, we will be highlighting one each week. So next one could be you. Yeah. You never know. Never know. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.